Thanks for downloading this episode from Teachers Talk Radio. You can find the full schedule and listen back to all our shows at ttradio.org. This show is brought to you in partnership with the Witherslack Group, experts in special education and care. Enjoy the podcast. Good evening, EduFolk. It is Wednesday. It's the late show. And you're only with me, Lucy Newberger, very briefly for about a minute and a half until we get the delightful Mark Creasy on and his guest for this evening, which is the lovely Ruth Swales, who I've just seen has popped into the space. So, Ruth, I'm going to set you up ready to speak and hopefully Mark will be right in behind you to have a lovely chat about all things EYFS this evening. Ah, there he is. Wonderful. So let's get him in the mix and then we can get started. And in the meantime, I hope you're all well and getting through the week as we all are invariably at this point. I do find this is the hardest part uh, of the teaching year, most definitely. Don't you, Mark? I find uh, October to just, October to Christmas the worst bit. Yeah, I always, I always think so because, you know, the night's getting darker and, you know, sort of people get more fractious and certainly if there's children that can't go outside because of the weather, um, yeah, I guess it affects everybody and, and possibly then you get possibly get people get a bit more grumpy as well because we've got the run up to um, Christmas and Christmas starts earlier and earlier. So I think that upsets some people as well. Speak for yourself, sir. I'm always sunshine and rainbows. I don't know what you're on about. Anyway, I will leave you all in the capable hands of Mr. Mark Creasy and chat to you all in a bit. Brilliant. Thank you ever so much, Lucy, as ever. And um, yeah, fabulous being here this evening and uh, another fabulous topic lined up for this evening. Um, following on from my chat last week with um, Mark Finnis, if you didn't pick that up, then do go on to the Teacher Talk radio app and go on to the, um, uh, the homepage and you'll be able to listen to that show whereby um, Mark and I talked about everything to do with restorative practice and actually um, how that's a whole school approach. And just as a, as people are coming in, just as a reminder um, why we've got the, the topics that we're doing, we um, have talked about how we could look at changing schools and what's going on in schools. And people have um, shared different ideas. And it really came from a conversation with the lovely Roy Layton um, a little while ago, where we talked about um, positive peace within schools and what's going on within schools and how we could actually transform schools. So we've looked at that. I've had a chat with the delightful Krista Hazel about everything to do with modern foreign languages, and maybe that's a a positive way that we could get um, change within schools and how we could have a look at those elements within schools. And uh, last week, as I say, was the um, really interesting conversation that I had with um, Mark Finnis, and then tonight we are going to be looking at early years. Oh, Ruth, you just, that's it. You're just crackling away there, Ruth. I'll be, I'll be I'll, and my guest tonight is um, an absolute expert on the topic of early years foundation stage. Um, and there's so much to talk about. If you've been looking in the news, um, on, on Twitter, everywhere, you will see that we've uh, EYFS is absolutely everywhere, including just over the past couple of days with information coming out um, from Ofsted that um, no doubt that um, Ruth and I will talk about as we go through the uh, actual evening. Um, just whilst people are coming in and joining um, joining the show, just a couple of things to give you a heads up about. Um, two things 
from us, really. Uh, the first one is uh, Teacher Talk Radio. If you listen along this evening and you're sitting there thinking, I'm pretty sure that I could do that. Um, well, don't just think it. Get yourself involved. And um, Teacher Talk Radio are recruiting for um, show hosts. Um, that's how I started. I thought you know, I was asked, Tom Rogers said to me, do you think you could do this? And I said, well, I, I, yeah, I think so. Let's have a go. And thanks to that, I ended up um, now hosting a show every Wednesday evening. So if you're interested, get in contact um, with Teacher Talk Radio. We're looking for hosts. So go on the Teacher Talk uh, Radio Twitter feed and all the information you need is there. Secondly, just next week, um, to let you know that there is a Witherslap Group Neurodiversity Evening. It's a virtual conference and you're invited to get involved. They're bringing together experts from across the neurodiversity field, um, they're experts from across the country, so you can get practical, informative and empowering advice and support. If you go on the Witherslap Group Twitter feed, which I know that Teacher Talk Radio keep tweeting out, you can get your place on there. And the Neurodiversity Conference follows on from a lot of what Mark and I were talking about last week in terms of children's learning. And I'm sure that will be something that Ruth and I will pick up as we talk this evening. And mentioning with the Slack group, just the last thing as people are coming into the show, just a reminder, just to let you know that we have got um, with the Slack group are the leading provider of specialist education and care, and they are looking for people like you to help them achieve even more. But with a Slack, you'll be given all the resources and support you need, and you'll get a clear path to career progression. So if you're thinking about maybe looking at something different, as Lucy and I said, it's that time of year where people start maybe feeling a little bit down, start looking for something different. Well, with a Slack, currently have some fantastic career opportunities for you to be able to apply for. You'll be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. And as I say, there's a clear path to career progression. So if you are interested, go on their website, www.withaslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers. That's www.withaslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers for everything to do with with the slack so that's the job that's the neurodiversity conference both with with the slack for you to have a look at but without any further ado um this evening i am joined by the fabulous ruth swales who is going to be talking with me about everything to do with um eyfs it is worth just reminding listeners that um, the show is an interactive show. It works best. It's your show. It works best when you get involved. So if you have a question throughout the evening for Ruth and you want to ask something, then you have two opportunities. You can either tweet it in um, and send a message in, or you can request to speak and you can um, ask a question or you can challenge what Ruth is saying. That's what we're here for. To encourage debate It is obviously a radio show so it's a phoning show so please make sure you get in contact and say yep this is what i want to say i want to challenge i don't agree or to ask a question i can see looking at the people listening we're not all um from the uh, early years we've got a range of experiences this evening and so therefore you may have things that you wish to listen to so if you do and you want to ask challenge then get yourselves involved now i'm gonna before i 
I'll speak to Ruth and we, we, we start off. I'm going to make a, an admission um, because when uh, lots of things I've talked about on the radio show, I've got I've got a real passion for and an interest in and a little bit of expertise in. Um, whilst I've got an interest and a passion for early years, I've got to honestly say, Ruth, that early years, I find the scariest part of the school. Um, I, I often compare it to being like Gulliver down in Lilliput, um, go, going down with the, young, with the little people because... I, th I take my hat off to anybody that can work in that area because although I'm secondary trained and I've taught mainly, uh, taught mainly primary for the past 12 years, um, I do uh, find it amazing what, what people do. So I've got no expertise on this um, apart from trying to avoid ha ever having to go in there. Um, in fact, the only real early years experience I had was when my own daughter who's now 18 was at that age and I know what one of one child was hard enough to do anything with so what it was like in, with a whole group um especially with the increase essentially increasing numbers that we're seeing in the news um I you know so I take my hat off to everyone so um it's time to say a very good evening to my special guest this evening Ruth and uh how are you doing this evening Ruth? Just need to unmute yourself there, Ruth. Hi, hi, sorry. Um, yeah, I'm a little bit coldy. I do sound like I'm holding my nose, but I have a voice, so this is good. I think uh, it's that time of year, isn't it? I'm good. It's good to be here. Uh, thank you ever so much for, for joining us. And uh, as I say, I'm not uh, an expert by any stretch of the imagination, which is what, okay. which is what I think which is what, what I think is important, because I think one of the things that I would say from the outset, although I sort of like... I marvel at what people do. I think that that's something that is often um, forgotten. And, that you know, the example I always give is, and I say it to teachers whenever I do any work with them, is why is it in early years the children are expected to pour out their own paint, but by year six, we have the teaching assistant to do it to make sure that, you know, to, to make sure that, you know, we don't trust them. And it's almost like we we, we unteach we un them by the time they get to year six. So um, I, I'm sure that's something yeah. that you, you experience on a, a daily basis, seeing that difference. Absolutely. And I, I, I was fortunate that I, I have taught every every year group in primary and early years. So um, that was a revelation to me, um, having had children that I taught how to do things independently and then going into their class um, and, and covering for them sometimes. But then I also ended up teaching Key Stage 2 and uh, finding out that the children seem to have unlearned some of that independence. Um, and I think some of that is to do with the fact that other things take over but we sometimes forget that actually children are capable of doing quite a lot um off their own back if we give them the strategies and the support to do it absolutely and, and, i mean ultimately that, that starts off where you know sort of one of the things we're going to talk about this evening but is that what you see fundamentally as the essence of what effective or good um early years um provision is all about in terms of that development and that giving the children the space to develop I think it's the, um, there's, there's so much that we do. I mean, the first five years of life are really fundamental, aren't they? There's so much change. If you think about the the way a child develops from birth to, you know, when we when we actually get through the school doors, um, there is so much learning that's already gone on. Um, and I suppose for us, it's about empowering children. They're naturally curious. We provide a range of opportunities and we, we teach and we guide and we scaffold and support. Uh, for me, I... I really believe that we're focusing 
on the prime areas, making sure that children have got those key core skills that they need um, to do well later on. Um, and also, it should be, and I'm going to say the F word here, it should be fun. Because if it's not fun when you're three, four or five, it's, you know, learning should be fun. That doesn't mean it's frivolous. Um, but yeah, it's about opening the, the world up to children and saying, look, that you know, this is what school is about. This is what learning is about. You know, and making it exciting for children is really important. But you're not alone in feeling that actually, you know, a lot of people say to me, oh, please don't send me down there. Uh, so I think it's it's quite a common feeling. And I think that's an anxiety about not necessarily knowing what good looks like because it's different. And that's OK. No, I think that's important. I mean, one of the things I've always said to colleagues, and I've done it myself, is to actually make sure that you do go into the early years area within your school or if yeah. you're a secondary colleague and I'm, I can see that we've got a few joining us this evening which is brilliant but actually go in but go in alongside someone that works in there and actually understands what yes. um what what it should look like and have that conversation yeah I mean I do a lot of them what I call narrated visits you know so people will quite often say to me, you know, because um, I, I do school improvement as well as early years improvement. And I'll say, we'll be talking about subjects or leadership. And I'll say, and what's it like in early years? And I'll often say, well, I think it's good, but I don't really know what it is I'm looking at. And that's okay, you know, so let's go and find out. And so we'll go together and have a look and I'll talk about what I'm seeing and what that means. And, and that's just, you know, giving people a different lens to look through because we all look through the lens that we're comfortable with. So, you know, it, it's it's absolutely natural that if you're a secondary teacher, you are going to look at an early years classroom and think, well, this just doesn't look like a classroom to me. It looks totally different to how I do things. And just because it doesn't look the same as key stage one, key stage two, three, four, it doesn't mean it's not academic and challenging. It's just different. Um, and it's being able to see through that lens, really. No, and I think that, and I think that's fundamental. When you picked up on a couple of things that I know we're going to come back to, see that I've got, to, I've got to ask. Possibly this is going to be more frivolous, but I've never, I've never understood it. How, how is an early year? You know, you said you taught across across all of primary, but how is an early years um, expert? Do you cope when you're in a staff meeting? Now, it, I can't believe it's only ever been the schools that I've worked in. But how do you cope when you're in a staff meeting, and the phrase comes out? Oh, early years. I don't know how this is going to apply to you. Oh, that's and, uh, <laughs> and, and everyone always so politely and smiling. And I don't understand it because I know because, you know, I, I go down and I try and talk to early years colleagues because I think it's not something I'm expert at. So let's find out more. I know the phenomenal amount of paperwork and the recording and uh, personal journals and things for the children that early years colleagues do. How do you all sit there so smiling and so, you know, relaxed rather than just getting up and doing a mass walkout and getting on with more important <laughs> things? Possibly that might be exhaustion after spending a day in foundation <laughs> stage. But I think, um, I think some of that, people make flippant comments and, you know, it, you spend, I spent most of my career having people saying to me, oh, if you go down to your sandpit or you just play. And my response to that is, it's great, come and join us and I'll show you what you do. And then people usually sort of say, oh, actually, I couldn't do what you do. And you think, well, all right, okay then. So, you know, let, let's reflect on that. But I think, um, I mean, my favourite, my personal favourite in staff meetings used to be when people would come in with a, a scheme of work that they were trying to sell you. And I would tentatively put my hand up and say, and, and what about nursery and what about reception? 
And the classic answer was, well, you can, we haven't done that yet, but you can take year one and water it down. So I think it's about breaking down those barriers and it's about, you know, talking about it. You talk about just play. You know, some people say to me, oh, you just play. And I say, no, come down and see what we do and I'll talk you through it. And, you know, it's about opening the doors up and saying, but I, I really want to show you what I do because I'm really proud of it. And everything that I do in my classroom is really carefully thought out. And there does seem to be this, almost this myth that abounds that early years is some sort of free for all. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm really fortunate in my job. I, I get to visit lots of classrooms. Um, I mean, by the end of the term, I will have visited 42 different schools, just this term alone, um, and seen lots and lots of different classrooms, lots of different settings. And I have only ever been in about two or three classrooms in in the last sort of 30 years where it's a total free-for-all and it wasn't good um you know it, it just looks different and so it's about educating people and saying oh come come and see what we do and I mean that in the nicest possible way you know because I wouldn't dream of saying to um a, a year nine teacher well I think you should do it this way because my experience of year nine is through my own children you know and, and when I was at school um, so I'm not going to to do that. And I think it's about having that professional respect in a professional dialogue. So so we smile sweetly and say, you know, come and see us. Um, and I do think the, the Ofsted framework has helped a little bit with that um, in that it started people. It's, it's made people start to think about, well, what does this look like in early years? Um, and I was I was really hopeful when that new framework was was first rolled out that, oh, actually, people are going to not not be okay with saying well I don't know what it's like in early years anymore they've got to come and see us um the problem with that can sometimes be that because it doesn't look like what they want it to be or what they recognize they start to then put that um later years lens on things and want it to change because they want it to look like something that's familiar to them and I totally understand that but that's not not necessarily what's best for the children so we've got some no. work to do there, but it's good. It's it's good to have the dialogue. It's good that we've opened the doors, and you know, I've I've talked for many many years, and one of my hashtags that I used to use a lot on Twitter was you know respect for early years, but talking about professional cross sector respect that we, you know, it it is a profession, an education profession, and we all have different roles within it, and we need to respect each other within that. I think that's really important. No, and I think you know, and I think that that's something that's important. And um, you know, you you've picked you've picked up on that in terms of that development. And I just want to want to ask something that I've I've asked quite a lot of my guests on the radio show. Um, I think it's really pertinent for early years, just from conversations and anecdotes I've had from people. But talk to me about the impact that you've seen in terms of early years, because of obviously the COVID impact um i know from colleagues you know what i've heard from colleagues that um work in this area is the lack of language skills therefore the children that may well try and communicate through biting hitting etc because of the fact that they haven't haven't got that what what is the what is the pick i suppose the two parts a what is the picture out there and what advice would you give to listeners that are here this evening we've got quite a few early years colleagues and welcome to all of you that are here um don't forget if you want to get in touch do um message or get involved with via phone call but just wondering um ruth what what is the picture out there but more importantly ha what advice would you give 
to people to what you're seeing is good practice and best practice to try and break that gap and support the children? It's, it's a really interesting question, actually. And it's one I've been talking about a lot. I've seen a really mixed picture. Um, you know, so obviously I've read the Ofsted research reviews around, you know, what they saw when they first went back into schools after the first lockdown and what the feedback was. Um, and, and interestingly, from an early years perspective, uh, physical development uh, came out quite a little bit, uh, quite a lot, actually. Um, and in in settings, so not in schools, but in the private voluntary independent sector, quite a lot of settings reported that they invested in more physical equipment uh, for, for larger gross motor skills stuff because they recognised that children had missed that. And in schools, interestingly, had teachers reported that they noticed that children were uh, having issues with physical development, but they hadn't invested um, in the same way. And I'm just referring to what Ofsted found in, in their initial studies. Um, and, you know, I'm always curious. as to I wonder what's driving that. I wonder why that is. Um, but I saw a really mixed picture. So I'm, I'm really lucky. I work all over the country with lots of different types of schools and settings. Some of the um, settings that I work with and schools that I work with were reporting that actually for their children, I can remember one particular school, them saying uh, their language is better than it usually is. And when we looked at the demographic of, of um, the, the families, a lot of the parents had been furloughed and they'd had more time to spend with the children. And obviously none of the other pressures that were going on um, that normally go on as part of everyday life because everything came to a standstill. And so they played games with their children and they talked to their children and they had a rather lovely time. Um, some of the schools where I work are, you know, surrounded by high rise flats and um, the only safe places to play are parks. And for those children, lots of them came back floppy. Um, and for quite a number of children, speech, language and communication has been something that lots of people have picked up on. But what's really fascinated me is that lots of people this year are telling me that the needs of their reception children are greater than last year's reception cohort. And it, they don't know whether they weren't anticipating it because, you know, we feel like we're back to normal or whether they thought it would be better. But we've been trying to unpick that and say, actually, you know, what, what were the things that they missed? And if you think about the children who are now in reception and we go back um, two, two and a half years, they would have been in nurseries and daycare, which obviously closed in the first lockdown. Um, and all of those social aspects that happen outside of that as well, you know, the when you make your first friends in daycare, um, you often go to parties, you make links with other parents, do play dates, those kind of things. They just haven't happened. And so we've got an increasing number of children uh, you know, where I'm going into schools and people are saying they really struggle to get on with each other. So PSED is a massive issue. Um, so we're doing a lot of focus work on how do we develop co-regulation? How do we support children? And what we know about um, personal, social, emotional development, it, it, there's often a direct link to the ch children's language and communication. Um, we need to give children the speech, language and communication uh, skills that they need to be able to express their feelings, to recognise those feelings and to say how they're feeling so that we don't get to the stage where we whack each other over the head because we want something um, or we, we don't have to bite because we can communicate in, in a more appropriate way. So a lot of the work that I'm doing at the moment is going right back to those prime areas and, and saying to people, look, it says in the early years foundation stage that practitioners working with the youngest children 
should focus on the prime areas because we know that they underpin all the other areas of learning. But even if chronologically these children aren't the youngest children in the foundation stage, if that's where they are because of the experiences that they've lived through, we have to take them from where they are. We can't just say, well, they need to behave and, and hope it will go away. We've got to give them the skills that they would have developed earlier, but they missed out on. Um, so we're doing a lot of work around that. And, and there's a lot of anxiety for people um, because all of those things take time. And we only have so much time with, that we're with the children. And there's quite a lot of pressure to get everybody year one ready. Um, but, you know, lots of my discussions with people are around, actually, you can be the best teacher in the world. You can be doing all of this wonderful stuff. But if your children's language and communication isn't strong, if they're not in a good place emotionally, if they can't regulate, if they don't develop executive function, um, then actually you're building on sand and they're not going to be getting the best out of whatever it is you're doing for them. And it's going to follow them through school. So we need to get the fundamentals and the basics right. Um, and, and I suppose one of my jobs really is empowering people to reflect on what they know is best for their children. And I know that, you know, when I was a teacher, when I was a head teacher, sometimes I just needed somebody to come and say, no, this is what you need to do. You kind of have an idea, you know, that, that that's what you need to do and that's what's right for the children. But sometimes you just need that external voice to say, no, you are, you're right. And, and you know, people are anxious and people are anxious because they want to get things right because they know how crucial early years are for children and, and how if we don't get those things right in the early years, everything else is a little bit wobbly. Um, so so that my advice is look at where the children are at, even if it's not where they should be chronologically and take them from where they are. You know, don't sort of skip stages because, you know, we need to be here. It's about the child. Go back to the child and where they are and what they need. No, I think that's a really good point. And interestingly, um, we had a first message in this evening um, from Aaron. So a huge thank you, Aaron. Um, obviously, always a good opportunity for me to remind everybody to message in. But Aaron has talked about the fact we... Uh, need not to always see it as a lens of disadvantage. COVID catch-up is important, but it needs to be universal and unique for each child. And that concept of it being unique is something very much um, of an early years niche thing, isn't it, um, Ruth, yeah. in terms of that um, that concept of um, the, the, the child. And that really climbs what you're just saying, actually, you know, yes, OK, they should be here, but they're not. So let's start, let's meet the child where they are yeah. rather than skipping steps. Yeah, because you can skip steps. But it, it, as you know, I mean, the reason it's called the foundation stage is because we're building these firm foundations. If you build a house and you miss a few bricks out because you're in a bit of a hurry, you, you know, you know what's going to happen later on at some point, don't you? And, and I think Aaron's absolutely right. So, you know, what I was saying before is is absolutely, you know, bears out what Aaron was saying. Some people actually had a very lovely lockdown. It wasn't all a deficit, um, you know, and but for other people, we have to recognise that they have lived through one of them well it's a totally unique experience nobody you know alive at this point in time had ever lived through anything like that before it's you know you kind of look back at it and you think oh wow that was really bizarre wasn't it um but we know what thing what difference early years providers make if children have have not had a huge chunk of that for a significant number of children that will lead to some things that they need a little bit more support and help with. And it's about seeing it through that lens. How can we help you to get where you need to be? The concept of the unique child is, is absolutely fundamental 
to early years. You know, that every child will bring something to the school, to the setting. Um, they'll bring their unique interests. They'll bring a range of experiences. And our job as teachers and practitioners is to find out what makes them tick and, you know, then move their learning on from where they are. And I think that's one of the things that makes it really exciting. I mean, I have to say I enjoyed, I enjoyed teaching every phase in primary, but I don't think there's anything for me that quite beats the the excitement of a child discovering something for the first time or, you know, really getting enthused and excited about their learning and, and you start to see them really fly. And, um, you know, I know that happens in other year groups, but there is a uniqueness about that in early years. And, and, and that comes from really knowing your children and taking them from where they are. No, and I think that I think that's fundamental. There's something now, I, although I've tried to prepare some things for this evening because obviously we can't whilst I can just ask some questions I wanted to just pick a pick a few bits and um I know obviously Ofsted um comments um uh, are rattling around with different things and I picked a few things out I just wanted to ask you about because something you talked about in terms of year one and about being year one ready now when I read the recent comments there was lots of talk about being from year uh, from birth to four not birth to five which would be reception mm-hmm. and i've seen some practitioners are talking about this fear that is reception almost going to be taken out of the early years and it's almost being um hived off so i'm just wondering what what's your view on that have i misread that or no, is that something I think that... it's it's a genuine concern i think you know having had conversations with people you know, senior inspectors in the past, um, one of the things that comes up that, that seems to be a huge issue is we have two frameworks for inspection. So we have the um, early years framework, which if you're in a private voluntary independent sector setting, if you're with a childminder, if you're with a day nursery, you will be inspected under that framework. If you're a child in a mainstream school, um, you will be inspected under that framework. And that is can be a little bit problematic because they're different and so what we have and we've we've raised this with Ofsted and talked to them about it is um you know children who in if they're a two-year-old or a three-year-old in a school setting the focus in the Ofsted schools framework is very much on the curriculum and it's about that cumulative curriculum how it develops from the moment the children walk through school so there will be things like history deep dives which go into early years whereas in um in the PVI sector, um, in within their framework, there's a focus on curriculum, but we wouldn't ever talk about history um, in, in the day nursery um, in the same way. We would be talking about understanding the world. And there's, there's a little bit of a tension around that. And one of the conversations that we had with some senior Ofsted inspectors a while ago, you know, one of them actually said, yeah, it is a problem having reception um, in the EYFS. But actually, reception is in the EYFS for a very, very important reason and that's because we know that in the past when the national curriculum first came out and I'm very old so I do actually remember this um, (laughs) we 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 didn't we didn't have an EYFS and so we when we went into schools and this is my early career when I was um, what was called a probationer then went into schools and I was basically told you know um, you've got this mixed reception year one class um, teach year one and water it down for reception And it really didn't work. And it became increasingly apparent that the the content and the the type of stuff we were expecting to do with year one children just wasn't appropriate. And what we know about very young children's learning is they don't tend to think in silos. You know, they don't tend to think about geography, history. I I can do something with young children that will cover all seven areas of learning. 
And I, I've seen this with um, practitioners who've said to me, I want to do a, you know, a, a history book and put all my history work in that. And then they're getting these photographs and this stuff that the children have done. They're going, well, is it history or is it geography or is it art? I don't know, because it's so interconnected. And, and so we, we're in this sort of dilemma where we've got this Ofsted framework, which is asking us to talk about um, national curriculum subjects in EYFS. But we have a very specific framework and there is a genuine fear um, amongst the sector that this top down pressure is going to lead to reception being moved out of the EYFS. And I think that will be disastrous because we have one of the youngest starting ages in the developed world and we are becoming increasingly more formal and actually there is nothing to say that becoming more formal earlier on is beneficial to children. But what we do know and what a, a significant amount of research tells us is that self-regulation, executive function, the characteristics of effective learning, communication and language, PSED, physical development are all fundamental to young children's development. And if we start to make reception more and more like key stage one, something will get squeezed out and it is highly likely it will be play. And you know, I'm just thinking now of Whitebread and Bingham's research, School Readiness, um, a critical review of the evidence. And what they found was um, young children are able to develop executive function in quite sophisticated ways when they are playing. Um, and, that, and through having conversations, through what Cathy Hirsch-Pasek calls serve and return conversations. And as adults, it's our job to facilitate that and to gently intervene and move children's learning along. Um, if we are prescribing everything to children and saying, this is what we're doing now, here's the lesson, here's the lesson, here's the lesson, when do they then develop these characteristics which we know are fundamental to their long-term outcomes? Um, so, so there's a real concern in the sector about that. And I think it's, I, I'm actually really impressed that, you know, this report came out on Monday. We're all really, really busy people. We're all working really hard. Lots of people in the sector are working on minimum wage um, or barely above minimum wage. And it's Wednesday and there's already a letter. Uh, there's already a response from early education uh, outlining why this is really problematic. And I'm really pleased and impressed to see that because I think people have perhaps underestimated just how strongly we feel about this. Our children have a right to childhood. Our children start formal schooling much, much younger than, than other people in, in most of the developed world. And, you know, there's nothing to show that it is having the impact that we, we would like it to. In fact, in other countries where they start formal schooling much later, um, those children outperform us. I'm thinking now of Singapore where their kindergarten stage goes to six and a half. Um, and yet, you know, their children just completely outperform us once they get going. So I think it's difficult to take different um, education systems because they're all bound within the culture and, and a range of other things. But, you know, I do think we have to hold on to the importance of play. We have to hold on to the importance of childhood. And I really do feel very strongly that reception needs to stay very much part of the EYFS. There's a reason it's there. We've been around this way before and it didn't work and, and it's not going to work now. And I think post-COVID, it's probably more important than ever.
No, I agree. And I think actually something that you've just mentioned, um, I meant to say it a little bit earlier, echo a little bit early on um, when you talked about some of the colleagues working on um, minimum wage. But I do think one of the things or one element that not mentioned this evening, I'm sure I'm sure you'll echo, is just how phenomenal the teaching assistants are in um, EYFS. Um, I know that in most schools that I've ever worked in, when you have a, a phase meeting, you know, certainly, I mean, traditionally I've been, oh, I've always been key stage two, and you'll have the teachers there, but very rarely do you get the teaching assistants there. Um, they're not, it's not, an, it's not an expectation, you know, so they don't, they're not seen as part of the plan. It's almost given to them. But I think the TAs, if you're in an, you're an YFS TA, you're there, you're part of the planning, you run groups. And I think they're, that they're so frequently overlooked um, in my view. And I think that that strikes a chord in what you're saying, that level of expertise, because many of them, well, that's what, you know, they've got into being a TA because that's what they, they, the area they love. And they've got some phenomenal expertise, not only, you know, not exclusively, but phonics would be one that I've seen and learned from TAs on. So I think that's, that, that is something that's forgotten, isn't it? Yeah, and it's not just TAs either. So I'm thinking of people now because early years, obviously, the, the vast majority of early years actually takes place outside of school. Um, yeah. um, although, obviously, we have maintained nurseries and we're, we're seeing an, an increasing number of funded two-year-olds coming into school. But, um, you know, within the private sector, and I think sometimes people think, oh, the private sector, these people get paid really well because it's private. Well, no, they don't actually. Um, you know, if you if you look on jobs websites, you know, to run... Uh, um, a maintained nursery you're looking at um, sort of between 20 to 25 thousand pounds a year they will have all of the um, sort of responsibilities you know like senco safeguarding um, you know ensuring that you're fully in ratio making sure that you're compliant Ofsted etc etc and when you work out how much they pay per hour it's usually between sort of nine pound fifty nine pounds eighty an hour um, that's that and the, the hours are long you know, they're not getting school holidays. It's 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 usually, you know, a couple of weeks holiday a year, you know, your minimum entitlement. And sometimes from 7.30 in the morning till 6 o'clock at night. And then, and then on top of that, because you need to be legally in ratio, you can't do your CPD in, your, in the daytime. And so people are often expected to come in the evenings, come at the weekends to do their CPD. So I think it, it's a huge ask. And, and, it, and it's one of the reasons that we're, we are actually hemorrhaging, and I don't use that word lightly, we're hemorrhaging people from the sector because they realise that actually they can earn more money going and working in Lidl, in Aldi, and they can walk through the door, do the job, walk out again, and it's not sitting with them, you know, outside. And, and the reason that they stay in the job is because they're passionate about it and they care about it and they love the job. But, you know, I do think when people say derogatory things about early years, and some people do, I think they need to remember that a significant number of people in the sector are doing a heck of a lot for not very much, and they're doing a great job. Yeah, and and again, yeah, sort of you say the, the paperwork, and you know, I know I alluded to earlier, but you know, the taking the photos and the the, the annotations and the yeah, independence I mean, we're, we're trying the, to we're trying to children. move people away from that because um, I mean, I, I was an accredited moderator for many years, and certainly when I first started moderating, that was an expectation. Since about 2020, 2013, the profile handbook has always said evidence is what you know about the child. You don't need to have specific documentation but it's been really hard to let go of that and I think one of the positive things about the new framework that came out um, 
just after uh, we went back to school full time, you know, sort of, uh, September 2021 um, and became statutory then is there's a real push to stop documenting everything, to stop taking photographs, to stop writing everything down, because that gets in the way or can get in the way of interactions. And the thing that we know makes the most difference to young children is those interactions that we have with them, what we call the serve and return of conversation. And, um, you know, they are the things that help shape children's brain architecture. Um, they are the things that help children make connections. And if I've got to stop to pick an iPad up and take a photograph or write something down, it gets in the way. So we're, we're trying to say to people, actually, you don't need to document everything. Stop it. And I have a mantra, which is remark on the remarkable. You know, is it a key wow moment for that child? And if it is, you might take a photograph of it. But actually, if it's a key wow moment, you'll probably remember it and you can write it down later. But stay in the play with the child and have a conversation and, you know, put the blooming iPad down and, and <laughs> do what you need to do. Yeah. And I, I mean, it, and it's interesting as um, as we're watching, I uh, can see lots of people um, throughout, uh, you know, sort of like doing rounds of applause and sort of like clapping and saying, you know, where they they agree, you know, with comments that you're making. Um, I think one of the things, you know, sort of like from a... a the, the other other end of this perspective like work, working in key stage two and I think it picks up on what you said a moment ago actually is that because of the fact it's that almost meeting across the range um, I've worked you know in several primary schools one where the head was an early years um, practitioner themselves and was a real expert so I didn't see um, that approach but I've also seen it um where the head wasn't an early years expert. And I think it was a case of, well, where's the evidence? You know, in, in year one, we can, you know, we've got a book and, you know, we can see the writing and the mark making. And when we yeah. get up to, you know, year six, you know, we can see the detail and it, and it almost becomes that sort of pressure. And if yeah. you are, I suppose, if you're an early years practitioner and depending on age, experience, confidence, whatever way you want to cut it, Actually, if someone's saying, well, we need evidence so we can prove it because we've got the, you know, we've got Ofsted, we've got LA, whoever it might be, actually, it, and I think that's a really powerful message yeah. to take away that actually that isn't an expectation. That, and, and, and that's uh, something the best practice. And that's what, you know, tonight's about, you know, what is the best practice to actually help colleagues? And so if you're listening tonight and you're, you know, in, a, in an early year's, setting and I've got more early years teachers listening tonight than ever so that's brilliant so thank you for bringing them to the show Ruth um but what I, but, uh, and also also you know so it's nice to see that you know people are giving up their time to do this but uh, what I would say is you know whilst we're going to talk about issues with early years and what's going on out there what I would say is you know there's an example of best practice so if you feel that you have that then there you know you've heard it from Ruth what you could do and having it and actually um, Kathy Graham um, wasn't there a singer called Kathy Graham I wonder if it's the same one um, but I doubt it but Kathy Graham has messaged in, me, me, uh, messaged in uh, it's definitely a concern it's as if Ofsted are loath to mention play when referring to reception um, we're going backwards as Wales and Scotland are going forwards absolutely uh, yeah. play, is, play is not a dirty word you know and, and it's funny because we get into all sorts of contortions you know and I've done this this is not a criticism because I've worked with people I've worked with some wonderful people who weren't who weren't early years trained, but you know, listened and we talked together and I explained the thinking behind it and who trusted me, um, but challenged me as well. And I've also worked with some people who wanted it to make to make it look like 
key stage two because that's what they recognised. And, you know, so I have been in that situation where I wasn't allowed to say, right, we're going to go into the continuous provision and play. We had to call it learning choices. Well, actually, do you know what? I really don't mind because they're playing. Um, and and I was in a I was in a class the other day where one of the children actually turned to the teacher and said, why do you call it learning choices? We're playing. And, you know, it, it's OK to play. And I would reclaim the word and say, let's talk about play, because there's a whole taxonomy of play. Play is, is so varied and different as guided play. There's independent play, there's child led, child initiated. There are so many different types of play. And so it's a little bit like, you know, the, the whole thing about Inuits having all the different words for snow, isn't it? Um, because play, play is, you know, quite, quite a complex thing and our interactions with it will change the play. So I'm all about, you know, sort of reclaiming it. But I recognise that some people are deeply uncomfortable with the word play. What I would say to everybody is go back to the statutory early years framework. That is the law. Um, so that's what we always come back to and say in there, it talks about children need to play. Um, it, it, it's a child's rights in the United Nations, you know, the UNCRC, the rights of the child. Article 31 is the right to play. And what we know and what the research that I was talking about before, and there's lots of other research that, that backs that up as well, is that play will be where children will experiment, they'll explore they will try out ideas because it feels safe and they will go deeper into their learning and play is okay. But if people are uncomfortable with it or if people feel that they need to have, you know, I've got to have some evidence to show, I would suggest that the evidence is what the children know. Now, now the difficulty that we have is that, you know, in Key Stage 1 and Key Stage 2, we have books to show. Um, we can take lots and lots of photographs, but what ha what is the impact on the children? You know, how does it move children's learning on? Well, it doesn't. So, you know, we might take a few photos. We might get children to record certain things. But the best way to find out what's going on in the classrooms is to spend time in there. Uh, and one of the most effective ways that I've I've found for recording and supporting children's conversations about their learning um, has been using what we call them floor books, but they're basically a big scrapbook. And rather than having lots and lots of individual photographs of children, we keep learning journals for those key wow moments for that individual child. So they will all be different. But we might have a class um, book which has a few photographs in which remind us of a key uh, thing that we did you know so it may be that I don't know let's say we're in the block play area one day and one of the children builds the most phenomenal structure and you might take a photograph of that structure and put it in the floor book and you might even write a few comments on some of the vocabulary they used you can then go back to that at a later date so it becomes a teaching tool so the children have that and they can access it and they can young children are very egocentric they like to look at photos of themselves so they will go back and have a look at those photos and talk about that learning that they've done. And, and that's really important. That's hugely important for um, executive function is being able to talk about your learning. But then the teacher might use it and say, you know, let's say we're introducing 3D shape. And you might have the book on the carpet and say, oh, do you remember when we built this this tower in the block play area, look at the shapes we use, what, what, which blocks did we choose and use the vocabulary. So you're actually building those links with prior learning in a meaningful and purposeful way rather than doing this abstract retrieval thing you say oh look do you remember when we learned this earlier 
And I actually think that provision, if we're thinking about cognitive load theory and space practice, provision is one of the best places that you can do that. Because here's, you know, I'm going to give you all of these skills that, that, that we teach you, either in provision or in whole class or small group, and then off you can go. And at some point you will draw on those skills to shape your play, to move your learning forward. Uh, I just think it's really, really powerful. And I think it would be a great shame to lose it. But floor books are... Um, are a really good way. I've got a couple of schools that I work with that have used floor books for years. And one particular school uh, now takes them all the way through to year six. So they take their class floor book with them and they, they sort of keep it. It becomes like a journal of your time at school. And it's really powerful. So, you know, um, one, of, one of the schools that I work with, they had a, a subject inspection before lockdown. And the inspector actually asked one of the children, you know, do, do you, have you learned about this aspect of geography before? And this, this chap in year six said, um, just a moment. And he went and got the floor books and said, in year four, we did this and this is how it builds on it. So, you know, there is a, an example of children actually using um, a recording tool and an assessment tool to shape the learning. And that, to me, is much more powerful than taking loads of photographs, spending hours sticking them in books, annotating them for who and for what and what's the impact. Um, so I think we have to find ways. So I have, a, I have quite a lot of mantras. One of them is remark on the remarkable. And the other thing that I say about assessment, it should be meaningful, manageable, minimal. It's about what's the impact on the child. No, I think that, and ultimately, what, what are they doing while you are taking those photos? Exactly. You're not having the conversations with the children, are you? No, absolutely. And, and just on floor books, you know, I, I when I was, I mean, I'm currently working in a middle school, so not wouldn't be using it in my uh, year sevens and eights, although Aaron has tried to convince me to come and spend some time in his early years classroom. I had passed on it, um, you know, sort of, but in my years, I, I wouldn't use a floor book in my sevens and eights, but I've got to be honest, use floor books in my year fives and sixes, and it was absolutely excellent. And the school was doing that, taking them through a uh, concept just as I left. And I think that you know they are they are incredibly powerful. Um, I just want to pose a question because what I want to do is um, we could keep going without a break, but um, I think it's important that you know you get a chance just to have a, a, a quick um, sort of like uh, liquefy your tonsils for a little bit, especially if you haven't been feeling very well. Um, <laughs> but so I just want to pose what I want to do is just pose you a, a question. It picks up on something that you um, said, and um, just want to ask you: What's your view on one of the things that's really hot? and been in the news and I think everyone would you know be you know, really be mad to have missed this is what's going on um with um ratios and the potential <laughs> for for changing the ratio so I'm going to park that one so okay. for a moment okay that gives me a chance if anybody <laughs> wants to get a drink or go to loo themselves then um please do um just really positive here from Joe Malone um, just to turn around and say, who said um, she's finding this really use, so useful as a governor, um, nodding along pretty much to everything that you are saying, Ruth. Um, and I've got to say, so, oh, so am I. And, I, and, I, and I'm not a governor, but I, I so so am I. So huge thank you. Thank um, you. So guess why you get a, a, a quick drink? Just just want to remind everybody, we've had lots of messages in this evening, which is absolutely fabulous. But um, if you want to message in. Please send, please send a message, um, and it's great people are messaging me as well as um, Tiki Talk Radio. So messaging, as I say, we've got lots of early years um, practitioners here. Um, so if you've got a question for Ruth, messaging a question. It's lovely getting positive feedback and getting positive comments 
Um, so we, we love getting those, but please make sure if you've got a question, then send that in. If you want, alternatively, if you want to challenge um, what Ruth is saying, then sort of like, please make sure that you sort of like send that in. But also if you want to appear on the show and um, be a, a actual speak, then, you know, sort of requests, you know, press to be able to speak and um, Lucy can get you on the show and we can have a chat and actually um, develop that if that's what you would like to do and uh, be part of that. Um, and just it's an opportune moment while I just let Ruth grab a quick drink just to um, remind you about two opportunities with, with a Slack group. So the first one is um, if you're looking for maybe a change of direction or a new role, um, that they're a leading provider of specialist education and care. So they've got loads of um, fantastic career opportunities out there. If you went with them, you would get a clear path to career progression and you'd be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits that the industry has to offer. So if you're interested, go to their website, www.withaslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers. So if you would like to get a look at a change of direction or change of um, uh, change of uh, person who you work for, then go and look at that website. That's www.withaslackgroup.co.uk uk forward slash careers and then the second thing with 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 a slack group is that next week um on the 23rd they have got their virtual conference for neurodiversity so if you are interested in that then you can um go along and you can attend and do lots of learning we've talked an awful lot about neuro things to do with neurodiversity uh, this evening so lots of um uh, learning for you to do there and i'm sure you might be listening and thinking well Mark, what are you, you're advertising that, but that means I'll miss your show next week. Well, actually, you've got a decision to make because I'm not actually doing a show this next week. My show next week is um, being given over because Nick Hart is going to do a book launch on his um, book, Impact. And so um, Teacher Talk Radio next Wednesday, the late show is being handed over for a live book launch. So um, as you haven't got me to listen to, then why not either join Nick Hart on the late show for a book launch or that gives you the opportunity to attend the virtual neurodiversity conference with, with a Slack group. So two opportunities there for you to take up. And um, just when we come back, um, just coming back to Ruth and before I let Ruth unleash about ratios, because <laughs> I, I get the feeling she's possible. I've said we'll, we'll take a break, a break and I get the feeling she's like a greyhound in the traps waiting. <laughs> but I just, I just want to make a personal plea because lots of us here this evening are primary colleagues. Um, and again, if you're a secondary colleague, and I know there are some looking at um, the names and uh, your roles, can I guess, um, but I would make a plea for all primary colleagues. Well, I think I don't think anybody's going to disagree with what um, Ruth has said about play being fundamental um, as part of the early years um, uh, development and how the children learn through play. Um, but can I just make a plea? There are lots of primary schools out there that are doing something which I call secondary education. Of, the, uh, of their school and they're calling playtime break and um, break is a secondary thing play is really important and as Ruth said you know it's a, a United Nations right and I think that actually just taking away that word from our actual lexicon even for year sixes turn around and saying go out to play um, it's playtime I think it's really important in secondary we see it as a breakthrough um, 
the learning. Um, and I actually think it's something that's really important to actually have a play. And um, so my plea is to everyone out there, if you're not an early years practitioner, I use play in the classroom. There's so many games and things you can do so you can actually get that experimentation and that exploration. But as a fundamental, if you think, even if you think, well, that's not for me, then please make sure we don't talk about break time. Um, right, Ruth, I've kept you on. Uh, I've kept you on the leash long enough. Talk to me about early years ratios and what on earth is going on with trying to say that these people who may well, may well be having to change a child's nappy, may have someone with, you know, SEN or may have someone that's upset, but apparently they can cope with even more children. Um, talk to me about it. Well, I just think it's um, it's very, very short-sighted. So we have this huge issue with recruitment that I've already spoken about. You know, wherever I've been, you know, since I've been back fully to work, I came back full-time to work in September um, after, after a period of bereavement leave. And I've just been shocked at how much people are struggling to recruit and retain people. Um, you know, we have people who are leaving for jobs to go and work in supermarkets, to go and work in uh, hospitality sector. And, you know, people are telling me they're putting adverts out for three or four, you know, times and not getting anybody coming. And this notion that you were going to make the the job more attractive by increasing the workload just completely blows my mind. Because at the moment, our ratios are if you've got um, if you've got um, children up to the age of two, then babies up to the age of two, it's one one person to three. If you've got children up to the age of uh, uh, two to three year olds it's one to four um and at one point we were talking about upping the ratios slightly and i know that it was mooted that actually we're just going to get rid of ratios altogether and this notion that if we do this it will somehow make childcare cheaper and early years um education cheaper uh, and more accessible is just a nonsense because if we're if we're struggling to recruit now with our current ratios People are not going to come to do a job which is hard enough already with more children because the thing that I find that frustrates people more than anything it isn't the pay, it's the fact that they feel that they are letting the children down because they can't get to them and they can't have the conversations with them. And most of my conversations that I have with teachers and practitioners who are um, finding life hard it's because they're frustrated because they're not giving the children what they know they need. And it's not because they're not trying, it's because they're either being asked to do something that's inappropriate or they just don't have the time. And that leads to people saying, do you know what, I just can't do this anymore. I'm, I've got to get out. And, and so the, the notion that we'll just have more children and that'll make it better is just ludicrous to me. We, we are saying that children are coming to us with an increasing number of speech, language and communication difficulties. And what we know makes a difference, the only way you move, move speech, language and communication on is by having conversations with children, uh, you know, with interested adults and, and other children. And you support and scaffold and guide. The more children you have, the fewer those conversations, the briefer they're going to be. Because, as you say, you know, you can be doing something really super. Child wets themselves or soils the nappy. You have to go change it. And straight away, the, the ratio in the room changes to to one where actually i can't be having conversations because i'm making sure that everybody's staying safe as a parent i would be absolutely appalled at the idea that a practitioner could have as many children as as you know one of the things that was saying just scrap ratios altogether um and 
unfortunately, there would be some unscrupulous people out there who would just say, well, have as many children as you can have. Um, you know, I, I used to inspect um, in in the early years uh, PVI sector, and we did come across people who were not always in ratio. We can't, you know, and, and weren't always putting children's safety first. It was rare, but it happens. And if we don't regulate properly, we are going to be storing up a whole heap of problems. What we know is if we invest in early years, if we get it right, if we put more support in early on, that pays off in the long term. Um, the, there's a huge amount of research to show that. I mean, there's, there's a whole sort of economic theory called the Heckman equation, which shows that actually if we invest in good, high quality early years where practitioners can have conversations with children and support and scaffold, those children will make good progress. If we if we change the ratios, any idea we've got of, of improving things is just going to go out the window because we can't get the staff already. It's just going to get harder. Um, no, absolutely. And I think, and it comes back, you know, um, you know, I've asked you a question that does relate to, you know, some, you know, some political concepts, you know, because it's what people believe. But do you think, you know, I mean, we, I talked, um, I've talked to a couple of the guests um, on different shows that part of the problem is, is actually, you know, not having um, Secretary of States for Education that have got teaching experience or really understand education. But it does it not come back to what you said earlier on that actually effectively lots of people and I was thinking I mean I, I actually worked in it was an independent school where somebody uh, we were going to have an, an inspection it was going to be um, the independent inspector um, and the head of early years I found them in tears um, the day before and we knew that they, I knew they were fab fabulous and um, my daughter went through there you know she loved um, being in there her reception teacher was probably um, a favorite teacher that she ever had absolutely absolutely loved her um, because of the way that they worked and just, you know, it was fabulous. Um, but they were told ahead of um, EYFS, um, the head went in the day before the inspection. And she said to me, she's never been in here before. She's just came, come in, looked around, couldn't believe all what we had had set up and said, I guess thought it was really like child minding. And that was a head teacher of a primary school. Now, if that's what someone there says now, admittedly, you know, I am talking, you know, sort of like 12 years ago that that happened. But if that happens then, but and that's someone in education, is mm. the issue therefore people outside of education think that and therefore actually the, the powers that be, if they don't have that interest or if they don't even, if they're not, don't want to show that interest, then actually what happens? I, th I think there's a few things there. I think, there's, again, it comes back to respect. You know, it wasn't so long ago that I, I did see somebody and, and they were a secondary teacher and they said something on Twitter uh, along the line. Well, if it is just play, it's hard to justify paying teachers to supervise it. Um, and this idea that we're just sort of supervising children and this lack of understanding of what it is that we actually do. And it isn't just play. Nothing is just play. You know, it, it's much more complex than that. So some of that is a lack of understanding. I have a real issue with people who use childminding as a derogatory thing. You know, childminding is something very different to what we do in schools and in settings, but it is also really important, you know, and, and for my children, I don't think I would have survived without my childminders. So, you know, um, yeah. I, think, I think we have to be really, really mindful of the fact that when we use childminding as a derogatory term, we are insulting 
um, you know, professionals who are doing a cracking job and looking after our most precious things. So I think, you know, but I take the point that actually it, it devalues the teaching side of things by suggesting that all we are doing is supervising. And I, and I have a real problem with that. Um, but I think even if you're not interested in education, if you're only interested in economics, it doesn't take a genius to work out that if we've lost 4,000 um, providers, you know, in the last year, and if we've lost, I can't remember how many it is. So, we, yeah, 4,000 settings and 20,000 childminders in the last few years. If we up the ratios and make the job harder, we can see how that's going to go. And just for, purely from an economic point of view in the short term, if we don't have providers, if we don't have childminders, parents cannot work. So it's just just so short-sighted. So even just from that perspective, my my brain just can't compute what it is they're trying to do. But I think, you know, it, it's about going back to valuing what it is we really do and not it's just play. It's about understanding that actually have a look at where those gaps are that everybody's talking about and realise that the reason that those gaps are there post-lockdown um, is because the people who work in early years do a cracking job. And when those children missed it for all those weeks that they were out, they that's why we've got some of the gaps that we have got, because the children weren't getting what they needed. That, to me, should make us value more what, what, what um, early years providers do with young children, not say, well, let's make it even harder and up the ratios. But I just think it is a, a lack of understanding, a lack of joined up thinking. I honestly don't think they understand the sector works. And it is very complex. You know, I've, I've, I've been in education a very long time now and I've been, you know, focusing mainly on early years, certainly for the last sort of 10, 15 years of my career. And I still have to check certain things because it's a really complex sector in terms of legislation, expectation, you know, depending on where you registered, how you registered. And, you know, if that's my thing and I get it and I love it and I'm passionate about it and I have to check stuff. We've had a series of ministers, you know, it's been like a blooming merry-go-round, hasn't it? So I, th I yeah. think that sometimes the ministers just don't get it they don't understand the complexity of the sector and i have to say i think looking at that latest ofsted and i use the term loosely research i'm doing little air quotes here uh, ofsted research paper it becomes quite apparent that they don't get how pvi works whoever wrote that because they're talking about this sequence cumulative curriculum but they don't understand that actually in the private sector one child might attend one day a week one child might attend every day, all day. Some children will, will attend half days. It becomes impossible to provide this idea of a sequence curriculum because they're all attending at different times and on different days. And, and actually, not only is it impossible, it's not desirable because that's not how our youngest children learn. And, and to me, it, it just shows the more of these publications come out, the more of these sort of ridiculous suggestions like reducing ratios come out, it just shows the lack of understanding of what actually happens. And I would urge anybody, inspectors, advisors, ministers, to go and spend some time in the sector talking to the people who actually work there and they will tell you what the issues are and they will make suggestions about how can we make it better. But, you know, at the moment, reducing ratios isn't going to cut the mustard. The, the, the funding that you get for funded two-year-olds, 
the funding that you get for three to four year olds doesn't actually cover the costs. So um, providers are running at a loss. There's only so long that they can do that for. So we have to have a look at how all this is funded. We have to give it a really good, we have to take a good overview and say, what isn't working, what isn't, and what can we do to make it better? Because at the moment, the system is crumbling. That's fabulous. And, and, and well, th first of all, thank you for, you know, I mean, that's a brilliant answer. And also, I didn't think anybody would be able to do outdo Mark Finnis on me asking one question and them talking uninterrupted for so long, but you've managed to outfinish Mark Finnis. I've never known anybody be able to talk without interruption like he did, but that was, that was brilliant. It wasn't even just a minute. You know, you, there was no hesitation. In that was I'm talking about what I'm passionate but no, but about. Thank you. And to be fair, Ruth, that, that to me is what my, the Late Show on a Wednesday is all about. I, I have people on that I want to talk to that I find interesting. Um, I want to learn. Um, I'm making lots of notes as I go through. Um, and I think it's re and I think it's really important. So although, although I, you know, I sort of joke about it, I think it's really important to say that. And just a, a couple of things that people are coming. Um, uh, the undercover teacher who who's loved listening um, to, this evening, but um, has had to leave um, because his two year olds um, climbed out of bed. Obviously, you've even got the two year olds wanting to get up and listen to you this evening. Um, also, Heidi. <laughs> Exactly. Um, also, thank you to um, Heidi for your nice comment all about um, play and the importance of play. Um, we've also had um, Miss Ship. Uh, you'll like this, Ruth. Um, she's messaged in say that um, the SIT was thrilled to see um, her reception class accessing outdoor play. Safe to say I set him straight that every reception class could be doing this. I fear this is something that could further disappear in some settings with the threat of the change of ratios. So we've touched on yeah. that. And then Robin, um, I can't give it do it justice, but yes, with lots of A's, Ruth, PVI is such a tricky style setting when it comes to offset. And I, I, I don't know about it, is it, and, and I don't mean yourself, your good self or anybody listening this evening, but is it because EYFS isn't glamorous? You can't talk about what you've done as a minister or a secretary of state about exam passes, number of people staying on, how we're outperforming via PISA or any other measures. And does it not fundamentally, in terms of what a lot of what we're talking about this evening, does it not fundamentally come back to that old Einstein quote that not everything that can be counted counts and not everything that counts can be counted? And is yeah. that, do you think, fundamentally one of the problems with early years? I think, I think it is, and I think that's really sad because actually you know, if you become a politician, it's it's public service and it isn't about glamour. You know, none of us go into early years to be glamorous. Heck, you know, um, it, you will usually go home covered in some sort of paint. And the number of times that I've called at the supermarket on the way home and realised that I'm wearing a spaghetti necklace or, you know, that I've got um, I've got a smudge on my face or some sort of ridiculous nonsense um, or, you know, mud or a handprint on your backside or whatever. It, it's not a glamorous place. You know, we change nappies, we, 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 we blow noses, but we also teach children um, to, you know, we develop the language, we teach them how to get along with each other, we teach them to read, we, you know, we, we start those early writing skills, we teach them about early number, we teach them about what a fabulous place the world is, how exciting is that and what a privilege is it and actually if you were a public servant it shouldn't be about the glamour, it should be about, about what difference you make and I think that's a real problem actually because 
if you go into being a public servant for the glamour, then you know you're in you're in it for the wrong reasons. But that's a whole other discussion, isn't it? Um, I I just think that um, we need to make it attractive to everybody, and by that I mean ministers. But I also think we need to make it an, an attractive profession, and we need to stop talking about going down to the early years like it's going into the you know the, the, the sort of bowels of the earth we need to talk about the fact that actually we are laying these foundations and if we don't get it right everybody else suffers and one of the things that i wrote about recently was that you know it, you know people thinking in key stage one in key stage two key stage three four five oh this ratio thing doesn't matter because it doesn't affect me it absolutely will because those when those children come through into your classrooms you will know the difference you will see the difference and you're going to have to work a heck of a lot harder to get them where they need to be so I think you know we need to make it maybe not glamorous but we need to value it more and we need to just respect it and and you know I, I, I'm always really heartened when people say you know I, I don't understand it and that's fine but I couldn't do what you do and thank you for what you do. And I, I feel the same about, you know, secondary, I've got children in, and my, my youngest is in secondary school. I can do what their teachers do, you know, um, and I have a tremendous amount of respect for them. And I think it's about that. And, and I do think we need to think about how we talk about it on social media as well. You know, there are some people who refer to people in early years as, as the mafia. And I think that's because we have to be passionate advocates because our children can't speak up for themselves because they're too young, so we have to do that. And some people perceive that as being bullshit. But actually, we're just being assertive. We're just saying, this is what we know about child development. Please listen to us, because we've been doing it for a long time. We know this stuff. I don't think that's too much to ask. No, not at all. And funny enough, you, you, I mean, you know, I, I am secondary trained, moved to primary. Um, but it's interesting, you said earlier about comments you got, you know, you've seen and had and read and received um, from secondary colleagues. And I do think that's something that sometimes you do see when there's a, a debate or a divide that sometimes, you know, I, I do read and you, you see that someone from secondary, I think, well, OK, yeah, we can all share opinions, but actually, where's the expertise? And, you know, I, you know, I open the show by saying that area of sport, I, I'd always go down there. I've looked at curriculum areas and helped design the curriculum as a curriculum leader for early years. But it's got to be done in conjunction and with the expert, as it would be with anybody. I'd expect, you know, someone that's wanting to look at PE. I'm, you know, my PE is my subject. And I was sitting there, that, that's how it should be. But I do wonder why we talk um, like that. And that then follows on to the other point that you made about the fact that um, speaking up because people think, oh, it's not me. And I think that personally, we possibly within education, you know, it's been kicked away that actually people do try and protect themselves and they don't look out. But I think it comes back. Um, I know it's a, a poem that's often read out on Holocaust Memorial Day, but that whole idea of, you know, first they came for and where, you know, someone goes through everything and then mm. it's like, oh, well, and then they came for me and there was no one left to speak out for me. And you sit there thinking, well, ultimately, if we don't do something about, you know, what's going on in early years, then it comes and it comes and it comes. And yeah. actually we just keep, we just keep accepting it and it just keeps um, being kicked away at. And we, yeah. it, it, we're, an education, we're an education system. And if you're in a, certainly if you're in a school, and I know that you've made sure you've stressed this evening, it's not only about um, schools. However, if you're in a school, the thing I find quite really sad, and again, comes back to what I said earlier, why do some colleagues turn around and say, oh, you know, early years reception this won't won't apply to you but if we all go into our own little silos 
actually, how do we look after each other? Absolutely. And it's and it's pitching. What I find really depressing about it is that we're all in education. There's a little bit of that around, you know, well, you're not a teacher anymore. Well, actually, I am because I still go in and I still teach from time to time. But I acknowledge that I am not a class teacher anymore. And, um, you know, I, I don't speak as a class teacher, but I'm still an educator and I still have an opinion that's valid. And we see that as well, don't we? Well, you're not a teacher, so you can't speak about it. Well, how about listening to me as a parent? as a professional who's worked in and uh, hundreds of schools all over the country and worked with hundreds of schools all over the world. Um, and I'm not saying I know it all. I learn something new every day, but I'd, I've got a few things that I've seen that I know that I think could be useful to you. I really don't mind being challenged at all. I, I actually quite like it. And when I'm leading training, I'll say to people, challenge me on this. If you disagree with me, say so. And, and that will sharpen my thinking. And you might change my thinking on it. I like that. But do it in a professional and respectful way. And I, I just feel that sometimes the way that people talk about um, working with young children, it's almost as if they see because, um, you know, young children are happy and joyful and playful, that what we do must be really frivolous. And actually it isn't. It's a serious business and we need to be taken seriously. And just because they are younger, it doesn't mean it's not academic. And, and you know what? Um, having worked in the primary sector uh, for, for the vast majority of my career, the, the the most people I know who've got PhDs, who've got MAs, who go on to do further study about their specific subject, it, it, you know, people in early years are always looking for more. Now, I'm not saying that's exclusive, but it is noticeable. The number of times I go into a school and the, and the, the teacher will say, oh, yeah, I've got a master's in early years, you know, and they've done that off their own back. They don't get any more pay for it. They're constantly seeking, you know, extra extra learning, extra training. I, I turn down requests to do training in the evenings and Saturdays, um, partly because I need to have a life as well, but also because I'm very mindful of work-life balance. But the number of people who will come if I do a Saturday workshop and give up their day for no pay just because they're eager and keen to learn. We need to be nurturing people like that, not making derogatory comments about them. Um, you know, Absolutely. we need to talk to each other. Absolutely. And, you know, and, and ultimately, you know, as hopefully has come across this evening, you know, that's why I've got, got you on this evening, Ruth. And, you know, there's lots more love coming in for you. Now, I'm going to say we've got 10 minutes left of, um, the show and I want to there's one topic I want to come back to that does mean 10 minutes um, if anybody's got more comments or um, wants to challenge etc Ruth just said you know she has no problem with that um, be, being having that level of challenge etc so I would have that but a few comments um, for, for you Ruth that's come through um, from Helen your passion and knowledge always shine through and that's definitely coming through um, this evening. Um, Kathy um, back, back in saying the funding issue needs to be addressed without affecting ratio. In the debate on this in Parliament, there was also the mention of the huge number of mothers who can't afford to work stroke pay for childcare and the fact that um, this, uh, the exit of the workforce is costing thirty billion um, pounds. You know, and obviously, as we all know, we haven't got the money to throw about there. So it's a massive issue. And you know, uh, as Ruth said, there's 
things out there and get yourself involved if you feel passionate. If you're listening this evening, um, Ruth, one thing I ask, I, I often ask guests when they say about research or um, things, you've referred to a couple of bits of research and um, things. So if there's uh, the, 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 the letter that you've said, if I could just ask that, you know, over the next couple of days, if you could tweet those, copy me, yeah. copy to radio yeah. in. If you're involved this evening, you know, and listening this evening, I'm guessing for those of you listening, you've you've listened and, you know, hopefully you feel inspired or you want to do something. So have a read, get involved, but also, you know, look at this letter, look at how we can make a difference, um, you know, sort of ourselves and what we could do. Um, comes back, uh, Rachel has said, those who think EYFS isn't glamorous, perhaps forget that the place where they are today as an adult is because of how much we were related to when we were younger, much deeper than aesthetics of how a role makes you look. It's one of the few roles that have a lifelong impact. And I wholeheartedly um, agree with that. You know, I think, you know, I can still remember my teacher when I, when I was that age, I would say my daughter Jessica's favorite teacher was her reception teacher. Um, and I think, it, you know, it is that li lifelong impact and it's one of those things that I've always thought, um, you know, it's called the foundation stage for a reason, you know, sort of so it is so important. Um, and then we've got uh, Sparkling Sugar. So it sounds a bit weird saying that, but I don't know your real name. Sorry, Sparkling Sugar. But language, social skills and the magic all begins in early years. Everyone in primary needs to work alongside early years. We are part of the school and the start of the children's learning adventure. And then finally, Mr. Priest, talking so much sense, Ruth Swells, the idea of adjusting or even taking away the ratios scares me as a teacher and as a parent. And I think, you know, that's lots there. Um, so last little bit here, here Ruth, just once you've mentioned the Ofsted report, I've picked some of the things out, but something that I, I wanted to come back to in terms of curriculum um, and we mentioned it regarding COVID and we've met, you know, and we've talked to curriculum, but one of the things that I saw in there that, that uh, concerned me, and I don't know if I'm right to be concerned or if I've misread it, um, that's entirely possible, is the fact that the, they, they seem to be suggesting that the, the concept of following the children's interests in the planning, um, isn't the way isn't necessarily the way to go and it shouldn't be the children's interest and the phrase that struck out to me was about the children learning what leaders intend yeah. um i know there's going to be the intention but they seem to be going away from that concept of actually the children's interests and, being the unique child. And, and what's actually in the statutory framework which is our legal document that we're bound to follow i mean i think this becomes particularly problematic that's exactly how i've read it uh, and everybody I know has read it. So if we're reading it that way, everybody who reads this document will read it that way, I would imagine. And it's particularly problematic when you think we are talking about babies here. We're talking about ba babies, two-year-olds. You know, I can have an intention that I want to do something with a two-year-old. Anybody who's spent any time with a two-year-old will know that whether my intention actually gets realised um, depends very much on, on what the two-year-old <laughs> is wanting to do. Uh, I find it really problematic. I find that sweeping statement that following the children's interests is, you know, limits their learning. How do we know this? Um, because I have not read any research to back this up. And in that report, 
I can't see any research to back this up. I believe this comes from a fundamental misunderstanding of what following children's interests is. So if you've not actually spent any time in early years and worked with young, young children, you might perceive that if we have a curriculum that follows children's interests, that means we do 30 different curricula in a reception class. That's nonsense. That's not what we're talking about. We have, we have interests that we know that children, um, you know, in general, there are certain things that children are generally interested in. And we would um, make sure that there are provocations around that. We would make sure that that's included in our overarching curriculum. But planning something to the nth degree, you know, like saying, right, um, with my two year olds in week two in September, I'm going to do this is just ridiculous because they're, they're two, they're three, they're four. So having the intent won't make any difference at all because, you know, they might need a nappy changing, they might cry, they might be having a meltdown because things aren't going their way. And, and so I just think, for me, I, I, I try to be polite, I try to be positive, I pride myself on being respectful. I'm sorry, that report's just rubbish. I can't be respectful about it because it isn't respectful about children. It isn't respectful about practitioners and I just think you know we need to be listening to people who work with the youngest children if they'd run that past us you know um, uh, if, they, if they'd spoken to people who are actually on the ground in practice day to day and said you know this is what we're writing this is what we're thinking they would have said you know come and spend some time with our two-year-olds and tell me how I make that intent happen when you know when my babies are crawling across the floor I'm sorry yeah. I can't be polite it's nonsense um, now, think, sorry to interrupt, but do you think that they're part of the issue? You talked about, you know, recruitment and people. You know, you said your hem that the, the the sector is hemorrhaging staff. Does that? I'm guessing, therefore, and it is only a guess. I'm guessing, therefore, that impacts on um, Ofsted. Uh, you know, do they? Is there a dearth of expertise within Ofsted? So that this is where an issue comes from. Well, I know that certain people have done uh, freedom of information requests um, asking about what's the expertise, you know, what's their experience of um, early years practice. Um, and they, they don't keep a record of that, uh, which is worrying in itself. What really concerns me greatly is that at the moment we seem to have an increasing number of um, secondary trained staff. Um, and I was really pleased to hear what you were saying about, you know, holding on to the word play and not trying to secondaryify um, primary. But we seem to be uh, in during inspection. A lot of the schools I work with are being inspected by secondary leaders who are looking at it through a secondary lens. And that's not a criticism of them. That's what they know. That's what they understand. They can have training. They can read the stuff. But if they read that Ofsted report, I, I really worry about the fact that they'll take that as gospel. They might not necessarily have this understanding of how young children learn and they will expect to see lessons in in the two year old room. Now, I, I've just completed um, a curriculum for two to three year olds for, for, for Oxford University Press. And I was very, very clear with them that I will not write lesson plans because that's not how young children learn. So it's about having this overarching idea of things that children will be interested in and things that we might do to support their learning. But we should be following their interests. And and what what a, a, a negative view of children that, you know, that these are empty vessels that don't have interest and it will limit their learning. Anybody who spent any time with young children knows that actually they have some really deep interests and, and they've taught me things, you know, things that they know about that they're passionate about. They will, you know, talk at length about them. And 
a good teacher, a good practitioner will follow that interest and interweave language and communication, PSED, writing, mathematical thinking, understanding the world. You can get it all with, with good, strong practice. I really struggle with this Ofsted notion that all children have to learn the same. You know, it was a criticism in one of the best schools that I worked with. One of the criticisms in their report was some children learn more than others. And I just thought, well, how do you know, first of all? And surely, you know, if we're about diminishing the difference, shouldn't some children learn more than others because they've got further to go? And, you know, how do we ensure that some children don't learn more than it just seems bonkers? And we seem to have gone so far down the rabbit hole that it's become laughable. But but. You could laugh about it, and I have laughed about some of the things that I've seen written, but it's really serious, actually, because the implications are going to be wide-reaching and they're going to impact on our children, and I think it's time to stand up and speak up. So for a long time, I tried to be very pragmatic. I tried to be very positive and, and, and work with, but actually, I think now it's time to call it out now and say, this is nonsense, and it is. <laughs> so I am. No, yeah, and that Ruth is is a perfect point for me to you know for for the conversation to stop. Although you know we just had another message in um, Helen's message in that you've made so many critical points this evening about the years always clear and professional and uh, saying thank you. And as she says there, let's remember how important early years expertise is, whether it be related to um, an Ofsted report with uh, research, shall we say, and so on and so forth. Um, Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us this evening. Um, Ruth, you've been an absolute delight, as I knew you would be when I asked you to be on the show. And it's um, hugely, hugely invaluable. Just remind everybody that I'm not here next week, so you've got two choices. Go to um, the Wither Slack Neurodiversity Virtual Conference, or you can um, go listen to uh, The Late Show, which is Nick Hunt's um, book launch about impact. I will be back in two weeks. Um, where my guest is going to be Richard Evans talking about emotional literacy. Um, but for tonight, a few key messages. Um, learning, it should be fun, but that doesn't make it um, frivolous. We should be in early years, but I would say everywhere, I'm sure Ruth would, empowering children. They are naturally curious and they're getting their key core skills in early years for their success later on. Just because you increase the formal in early years doesn't mean that we increase the benefits and we need to look at self-regulation and executive function because they're the basis of development. And if we don't do that and we try and make things more formal, the thing that we lose is play. And for those of you worried about play, you're working in a school and maybe you're not getting that support. Um, Ruth told us, go to the statutory early years framework. Not only is it a United Nations article for child's human rights, but it is there that they need play so that they can experiment and that they can explore and make sure when you're working with the children, remark on the remarkable and all recordings should be the three M's. It should be meaningful, manageable and minimal. And that allows you to um, make sure that you've got that work life balance. Um, the, the late late show is going to be starting in a moment with Toby and Ed. So go over to Teach Talk Radio and join them. But all it's left for me to do is to thank the lovely Lucy once again for being my fabulous tech, but especially to Ruth for being such a fabulous guest. And I am pretty sure, Ruth, in the new year, we could have you back on, um, hopefully, and we can continue this conversation because there's so much to talk about. But thank you for tonight, Ruth. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Absolutely brilliant. Thank you, Lucy, for being tech again. And thank you to all my listeners. It's been great having you with me this evening.